Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Family Worship Sunday, I would like to invite our Director of Children's Ministry, Roxanne, up for a Kingdom Kid Focus. Hi again, Kingdom Kids of all ages. Today we are going to hear another story that goes along with Pastor Adam's sermon today. This story is titled Amazing. Let's get to it. Wow, Jesse exclaimed in awe as he jumped to his feet and joined the applause with the rest of the audience. He blows my mind. How does he do all those tricks? Amazing Miguel the Magician really is amazing, Jesse's friend Devante agreed. They both stood there looking at the talented magician who had in his final act had just made a live horse disappear from the stage. Amazing Miguel, who looked regal with his dark slick hair, long black mustache and thick beard stood straight in his tall black boots on center stage. As the applause increased, he swept off his hat and bowed, letting his long black satin cape with his gold, the gold buttons and trim swirl around him. The applause ended, and everyone started to file out of the theater. Jesse and Devante's dads walked behind the boys, smiling at each other as they listened to their boys argue about which was the best magic trick. That guy leaves quite an impression, Devante's dad, Mr. Ty, said. Yep, we definitely don't qualify for magic trick hero, Jesse's dad, Mr. Jim, replied. They made it out of the building and turned the corner in the parking lot when Mr. Jim stopped short. Oh no, I don't have my cell phone. I must have fallen out of my pocket in the theater. I'll take the boys and wait in the car for you, Mr. Tide suggested. It might take you a while. There's still a big crowd coming out. No hurry, though. Okay, thanks, Mr. Jim said as he headed back into the theater. The three of them strolled to the car, which was parked at the back of the theater. They decided to wait outside because it was such a warm April day. Twenty minutes went by. The parking lot was empty now except for their car. Gee, I hope Dad's able to find his phone. It's taking him a long time, Jesse mentioned, now slightly concerned. Rats, we forgot to pray about this, Mr. Ty replied. Well, we can do it now. Uh, uh, maybe not. It looks like God's already answered. He pointed and the boys turned to see Jesse's dad jogging towards them with the phone, raised, hand raised in triumph. The guys all shouted hooray and started to get in the car. Well, Mr. Jim began to explain what took so long. BAM! They all stopped at the noise and looked up. In front of them was an SUV hitched to a horse trailer. The trailer had backed right into the back stairs of the theater. It didn't look like there was much damage. Just then, a man, who looked vaguely familiar, came running out the theater door. His hands up in the air and he angrily began yelling at the driver of the SUV. They couldn't make out his words, but that might have been for the best. The driver came over to survey the damage clearly apologetic and practically bowing down to the man. The man pointed to the trailer and the driver got back in the vehicle to move it forward. The man disappeared back into the theater and a moment later emerged from the back door leading a horse. That's amazing Miguel! Jesse exclaimed. I thought he looked familiar, but he looked so different. It was true. Amazing Miguel looked a lot more like morning Miguel like he rolled out of bed, threw on a wrinkled t-shirt and baggy jeans and forgot to comb his hair, which now there was a lot less of, and it was dark brown, not black. His mustache was completely gone, and he had a bushy goatee where his sleek black beard had been before. He didn't look as tall or as regal as he had only 40 minutes before. Amazing Miguel loaded the horse and the cowering driver closed the trailer doors. Then the magician turned to the driver and shouted at him. This time they heard what he said clear as day. 
You are so stupid. Can't you ever get anything right? Let's go. I'll drive. The boys gasped, and as if on cue, Amazing Miguel turned and saw them all standing there, staring at him. The magician's look of sudden surprise confirmed he hadn't planned for anyone to see this performance. He suddenly looked down, shook his head, ran to the SUV, got in, and drove away. The first few minutes of the ride home were quiet. Mr. Jim spoke first. I want to tell you a true story from the Bible. It's told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the New Testament. It's quite an amazing story, Mr. Jim said and winked. The boys gave a half-hearted smile. One day, he proceeded, Jesus decided to take his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him far away up on a mountaintop to pray alone. That must have been some hike because they became very sleepy. But what happened next quickly woke them up. Jesus' appearance changed before him. His plain, dusty clothes became white. The Bible describes it as dazzling white, whiter than if they were bleached, white like, a, like light or a flash of lightning. And Jesus' face shone like the sun. Jesus was glorious and magnificent and radiant beyond words. Then suddenly, Elijah and Moses from the Old Testament appeared and just started talking with Jesus. Peter, James, and John were in awe. This was awesome and frightening. Peter was so overcome, he blurted out, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I'll put up a little house for each of you. Kind of an odd thing to say at the moment, but that was Peter for you, and I might have done the same. Anyway, as he was speaking, a bright cloud came and covered them, and they heard God's voice say, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Then it was over. Everything was gone. And Jesus was standing there before them as nothing earth-shattering had ever happened. Jesus told them not to tell anyone about what they saw until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The disciples were confused by what he said, but they obeyed God's voice and listened to Jesus. However, they did discuss it when they were alone. What do you think about this story, Mr. Jim asked the boys. Devante spoke first. So those three disciples got to see Jesus in a way that no one else on earth did? Wow, like lightning ka-chow, so radical. Yep, Mr. Jim agreed. Jesus is all man and all gone, all God. So the disciples got to see something Jesus hadn't revealed about himself to others yet. Jesus was an ordinary person, but also so much more. I thought Amazing Miguel was amazing, a disappointed Jesse said. It turns out he is just like us, but even worse. He was so mean to that man, but he was so nice and great on stage. I never want to see him again. Whoa, bud, his dad interrupted. Maybe a better title would, for him would be Magician Miguel. He does have a wonderful talent that we can enjoy, but what he said was very wrong and hurtful. We all have different sides to us, and no one except Jesus knows us fully and completely. Jesus is always more awesome than we can see or imagine, but the rest of us are only awesome some days and awful others. Kind of like Peter up there with Jesus. Later, Peter betrayed Jesus even after seeing who he really was in all his dazzling white radiance. But Jesus still loved him so much, he forgave him and he died for him because he knew Peter was a confused sinner. I think we should forgive and pray for magician Miguel and the man he yelled at. People are going to always disappoint us once in a while, but Jesus is perfect and we can always trust him. After all, Mr. Ty added, God did say, listen to him when they were up in the mountain. Yeah, Jesse cheered up. I'll pray for Magician Miguel and I'll even try to keep a secret like Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to do until they know more. Jesse was on fire now. Maybe I'll send him an email and tell him about amazing Jesus. Both dads looked at each other, smiled in unison, and said, that would be amazing. They all laughed and jumped out of the car, happy to be home. The end. All right, let's pause for prayer for a moment. 
Dear Jesus, you are perfect and truly amazing. We don't understand how awesome you really are. We are sinners and we admit to the wrong things we do and say. Thank you for loving us always. Help us to listen to you and find ways to help and love others each day. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. I want to invite Eliana up to do our scripture reading this morning. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John down. He led them up a high mountain. They were all alone. There in front of them, so white, wait, <laughs> there in front of them, his appearance was changed. His clothes became so white, they shone they were whiter than anyone in the world could reach them. Elijah and Moses appeared in front of Jesus and his disciples. The two of them were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters. One will be for you, one will be for Moses, and one will be for Elijah. Peter didn't really know what to say because they were so afraid. Then a cloud appeared and stormed them. A voice came from a cloud. It said, This is my son, and I love him. Listen to him. They looked around, suddenly no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. They came down the mountain. On the way down, Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone what they had seen. He told them to wait until the man of risen from the dead. So they, they kept the matter to themselves, but they asked each other what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked Jesus, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah has to come first? Jesus replied, That's right, Elijah does come first. He makes all things new again. So why is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and not be accepted? I tell you what, Elijah has done, has come. They have done to him everything they wanted to do. They did it as it is written about him. Uh, to be back. Uh, Elaine and I were in Costa Rica for 12 days. It was wonderful. Uh, we spent a week on the beach soaking up the uh, Central American sun. Now we spent three, four days up in the cloud forest, which is a whole separate ecosystem uh, unto itself. It was so amazing. Saw lots of birds and it was really awesome. One of the things that really stuck out to me though about Costa Rica were the fruit. Man, the fruit was everywhere. Fruits I had never seen before. Fruits I had never heard of, and they're just sort of everyday fruits there. Let me give you some examples. So the first one we saw is this. Who can tell me what this is? Rambutan. Does anyone know what it's called in Spanish? Mamoncino. Okay, good. All right, so that's a rambutan or a mamoncino. What about this one? Guanaba. Okay, that's good. It's also called a sour sop here in English. What about this one? You guys got to know this one. Coconut. Everyone knows a coconut. Okay. All right. Let's try one more. What about this? Not peas. Not tamarindo. Good. No. This is guava. Now I sort of cheated you. This is not a fruit. This is a bean. But many of you have had guava ice cream. This is it. This is where the flavor comes from. It's often called the ice cream bean. And this is a flavor that's used very frequently in Costa Rica in what they would call in batidos, in like uh, smoothies, what we would have here. Okay. And how about this one? Who knows this one? Dragon fruit. What's this one in Spanish? No? They're trying to translate. In Costa Rica, it's called pitaya. Pitaya. Okay, this is dragon fruit. Now, of all of these fruits, what really stands out to you about these fruits? Go ahead, AJ. They're all different. That's true. Anyone else? How about, go ahead, Caitlin. They do have bright. What about the coconut? It's dark, so you, but most of them have bright colors. That's good. Anybody else? Go ahead, Bella. The names are different. Yes, okay. What I see when I look at these fruits are things that I would otherwise not eat. They look pretty funny. I mean, let's put the picture of the first one up again, the rambutan. Most of the time, things that are furry, 
do not taste sweet like fruit. Do the next one. How about this? This looks like what? This looks like Shrek. This looks like ogre skin or something. This can't possibly contain something sweet, right? Spines, right? What about hairy and hard and brown? No, we wouldn't want to do that. What about the next one? Beans. Who likes vegetables? No one wants to eat. Put your hand down. You're ruining my thing. No one wants to eat vegetables, but it looks like one. You would not expect it to be sweet. It was not until you open it up and taste it that you know. What about the next one? Dragon fruit. Now, I will say that this is probably the prettiest one of them all. But still, I don't know. It looks like a tropical artichoke to me. It's not something that I would probably assume tasted very sweet or very fruity, yet it does. Okay? Well, there's some really important parallels to this idea, to the way we understand and see Jesus. You know, if we judged a fruit simply based on what it looked like on the outside and what our ideas are about how it might taste, we would miss out on the sweet and juicy center. We would miss out on something awesome. The same thing occurs when we think about Christ. We think of Jesus in a certain way. We read the scripture, we generate an idea about who he is. Some of us might emphasize more the forgiving Jesus, the loving Jesus. Some of us might emphasize more the Jesus who will come and conquer, the punishing Jesus. Some of us look at the wisdom that he speaks and emphasize that portion of him. And others of us focus solely on the cross and his crucifixion. What God wants us to understand is who Jesus is in his entirety. And sometimes it's important for us to set aside aspects that we think are true to allow God to speak for himself about who Jesus really is. I mean, we, we make Jesus look like who we want him to be. In psychology, this is called motivated perception. We want Jesus to be something, and so we make Jesus that something in our heart. That is who we see. It's a very dangerous thing in our Christian walk, and we need to continually push against it. We need to constantly be asking Jesus, who are you? Show yourself to me. Let me understand who you are in your totality, not just the pieces that I want. For after all, Jesus is often is more often than we often judge him to be. And we miss out on that sweet blessing of seeing him in all of his glory if we're unwilling to allow ourselves to be changed by who Jesus says he is. So to understand today's passage, which is Mark 9, 2 through 13, we really have to understand the previous verse, Mark 9, 1. Now this verse that we're going to talk about is a verse that has often been sort of a a real question for me. When did this take place? What is Jesus talking about? This is what Jesus says. He says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. I would read interpret that sentence to state that people would still be alive when Jesus returns in his second coming. That's what it would seem, and all of his power and all of his glory. But what we're seeing in today's passage, the transfiguration, is the answer to Jesus' statement. When we see the transfiguration, the story today of Jesus being changed before the eyes of James, John, and Peter, it was at this moment that the kingdom of God had come in glory, that the Son of Man was revealed in power. And this moment is called the transfiguration. The transfiguration. So today there's three points that I really want us to discuss. The first one is who is Jesus really? Who does God say that Jesus is from this passage and what can we learn from that? There's certainly more that met the eyes of the disciples 2,000 years ago on that mountain and there will be for us today. The second thing we're going to talk about, point we're going to talk about, is why does a clearer picture of Christ, why is this essential for our lives? And finally we'll discuss how can we here today in Elmhurst, among the chaos and the mundane and the unknowns, get a fresh new vision, a truer, more clear vision of who Jesus is. So first, let's take a look at the text and see what Jesus is saying about himself, about what Mark is saying about Jesus, what God the Father is revealing about Jesus in this scene on the mountain. The first point for this morning, Jesus, kids, pay attention. This is important. Older kids, pay attention. This is important. We forget this sometimes. Jesus is the divine Son of God, the center of God's plan of redemption. This seems so obvious. We talk about it all the time, but we're going to talk about internalizing it today. 
We're going to talk about living and having a life that's based in this truth. It says, After six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. This scene is showing us that Jesus is divine. That Jesus is God, very God, in the flesh. It says that he takes them up to a high mountain. Now in Israel, uh, in the Estralon Valley, there is a mountain that traditionally is called the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, it's called Mount Tabor. The problem is, it's not particularly high. Um, and it says that at the top of the mountain, they were all alone. But at the time of Jesus, there was a fort up there. So that's probably not where they were. This is probably Mount Hermon in what is present-day Lebanon. It's 9,300 feet high. You're covered with snow most of the time. And it's probably here that this scene takes place. Imagine being on that mountain, 9,000 feet. The temperature is so much cooler than it is in the valley, following the Lord up there. And there, in that isolation, having Jesus change before you. Dazzling white. You see, God made a habit of revealing himself and who he is atop high mountains. He does it several times. The most obvious is the Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, God revealed who he was to Moses and the elders of the Jewish people. It says they spent eight days up there. It says that they spent time there eating with God, supping with God, being fellowshipping with God, and spending time with him. It was there that God revealed who he was and gave the law to those men, to those elders of the Jewish people. The word used here for transfiguration is a word that you might recognize. Does anyone know the word? Metamorphothe. And what does that sound like? Does anyone know what that word sounds like? Metamorphosis. Who here under 10 can tell me what metamorphosis is? Anyone? Metamorphosis? You forgot. That's okay. I forget too. Metamorphosis is the term that we use to describe when an insect, namely a caterpillar, be envelops itself in a chrysalis or a cocoon and then is born as a butterfly or a moth. That changing shape, that's really what the word metamorphose means in Greek. This word means to be changed. He was revealed. It wasn't that Jesus so much revealed himself. It was God revealed who Jesus was to the disciples. And he changed shape. You see, if we viewed a butterfly based on what we... If we assumed a butterfly would come out based on what it looked like in its cocoon, we would have a totally different image of what comes out. We see this brown, sort of drab-looking thing. It looks dead. It looks sort of alien, doesn't it? And we assume that what's inside must be the same. But then just a few weeks later, it begins to move, and out comes this beautiful butterfly, something we never would have expected to come from inside of that. And the same thing happens with Jesus. Jesus' divinity, his godness, comes out before them, and he begins to radiate light. This light is a very important piece. In the Old Testament, this light was called Shekinah. It was the radiant glory of God that come out from uh, inside the Ark of the Covenant. In the New Testament, we see that God is light, that Jesus is light. He is the light of men. And that from inside, our Savior comes very God of God, that he radiates all of the trueness in radiance of God himself. Verse 7 says, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, and it said, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. So not only is Jesus God, but he is the son of God. Matthew and Luke say at this moment that Jesus' face shone as well. This is a parallel to the book of Exodus, when it says Moses came down from the mountain after spending time with the Lord, and he, he had to wear a veil because people were afraid of what he looked like. His face gleamed light. Here Jesus not only is standing face to face with the disciples, but is radiating who God is because he is God. He's the Son of God. He's the pre-existent second person of the Trinity. Now, in some way, we're all children of God, aren't we? I mean, that's what we talk about. But if there's a way to distinguish it, he's unique. We'll call him the big C child of God. He's just like God the Father in all of his substance. We're not. We're not God. 
but we image God. Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. And finally, this revelation of Christ upon the mountain showed that Jesus is the center of God's plan of redemption. It says that Jesus speaks with Moses and Elijah on that mountain. That it wasn't just Jesus who was changed, but that two characters, two men who were preached before this in heaven come and speak with Jesus right before the eyes of the disciples. What an amazing event. Could you imagine being there? It's no wonder Peter speaks out and says, oh, we should make tents for all of us. There's reason that that wasn't a terrible idea, but nevertheless, he was afraid. He didn't know what to say. None of them did. After all, Christ, the man they were following, the conqueror warrior, who they thought was just man, but maybe special man, turns out to be God himself. And now he's speaking to two men who before this were in heaven, Moses and Elijah. Sometimes Bible scholars say, well, there's a reason that Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah. I don't know if this is true, but sometimes it says, they say that Moses is speaking as a witness of the Torah, the first five books, and that Elijah symbolizes the prophets that spoke about the coming Messiah. And so it was a way for them to link all that was written about Jesus and his word in the Old Testament to who Jesus was in his person. This wouldn't be unusual because in John 5.39 it says this. He's speaking, this is Jesus, speaking to Pharisees. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. The Pharisees had what we call the Old Testament today. And in those words, they pointed to Christ. Luke 24, 27 says, this is at the end, after Jesus is resurrected, he's walking along the road to Emmaus with two disciples who had just seen Jesus crucified. And he opens up the Bible and he reveals to them this. It says, and then beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So you see Moses and Elijah. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is the center of the plan. And we're going to understand why this is important in the next point. But So what is so important about this moment? Why did Jesus lead them up this mountain to be revealed in all his glory? And why is this important for us today? Because as you read the passage, you can just sort of get... Let me tell you this. this oftentimes we read the Bible to assimilate information. We feel that if we know more of what's in the Bible, we will become more like the Christ of the Bible. But this is not true, and this is a dangerous idea. We can read and understand what's in the Scripture, and we can memorize verses and sound them off, but if we do not internalize them, if we do not allow, by grace, the Holy Spirit to impact our lives and ask ourselves, well, what does this mean for me? How does this change my life and my worldview? How does this change the way that I see Jesus? It's pointless. It's dangerous. Dangerous. Because we wrongly assume, because I know the scripture, I'm okay. But if we're not applying and living what the scripture is teaching, what are we? I don't know, a banging gong. Different analogy, but the same idea. So this is important. The second point for this morning. First one is that Jesus is divine, the Son of God, the center of the plan of redemption. This is an incomplete vision of Christ impacts our perspective on our lives, circumstances, and struggles. It's a long way of saying it changes the way we live. It changes the way we live. See, the disciples had a preconceived idea of who the Messiah would be, didn't they? We've talked about this several times in this series through Mark. They assumed that the Messiah would come and win back Israel, kick out the Romans, that Israel's golden era would return, and that all of the promises that they read in the prophets and in the Torah would be fulfilled would come to pass that the enemies of Israel would be crushed and that the Messiah would reign from the throne of David forever. This is all they could see. This is all they could understand. And it changed the way they looked at him. I mean, when they looked at Christ, they thought of him probably as a miracle-working teacher-warrior. <laughs> but there's more to meet the eye with Jesus in this way. How many of you, I, I could probably speak to most of you guys, I know the millennials will say, yeah, how many of you know what Transformers are? Right? I mean, everybody. If you're like 45 and younger, everyone's got to know. This is one of those, those franchises that like parents, kids, and almost grandkids now are all like involved in this same uh, franchise. Transformers. They're these alien robot machines that come and transform into people. They're people. 
they look like just a car. And people assume that it's just a car, but when they allow themselves to be revealed, they stand enormously tall, have weapons of war, are powerful and gloried. This is what it is when they look at Christ. They see Christ as just a car. <laughs> He's a transformer. And he was transformed before their eyes. Yeah. I'm owning it. That's okay. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you evidence. Why? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to arrest Jesus, who remembers, if you're a kid, you can answer. If you're an adult, you cannot answer. Peter grabs a sword, and what does he do? No, no. Go ahead. He cuts off one of the soldier's ears. Now, for a bonus point, what's the soldier's name? Adults can answer on this one. Malchus, right, Malchus. Peter takes a sword. He sees his savior, his friend. The Messiah, the hope of Israel, being taken and arrested by those dirty Romans again. And he takes a sword and he swipes off Malchus's ear. Good job, good job. He cuts off the ear. If Peter really understood who Jesus was, and he understood that Christ had to die and suffer, and that in that death would be conquering Satan forever, he might have let Jesus go. Albeit sadly, but he would have seen who Jesus was and what Jesus was capable of doing and was intending to do on Peter's very own behalf. The way we see things, the way we see Christ, our perspective of him, impacts the way that we live. Could you hand me the sermon uh, next to you? Yep. Please. Just, just this. Thank you. Thank you, honey. All right. So let's take a look at the three aspects of Jesus that were revealed here on the mountain. Let's look at each one of those. Remember we talked about that he's God. We talked about that he's the son of man. We talked about he's the center of redemption. He is the plan of God for the defeat of sin. So let's look at those three things and let's see how they impact things. The first one, Jesus is God. Jesus is more than man. He is God. We have the tendency to look at Jesus as just another wise man sometimes. We need to understand who he really is. If we don't understand that Jesus is God, it will inevitably move us to living a life where we, are, where we view Jesus as weak and unable to do anything in the struggles in our lives. After all, he's just another guy. He might be the perfect guy, if, and on its own, if there were a man who could live a perfect life without being God, it would just heap shame on me. Because then I would tell myself it's possible. I would tell myself it's possible. If we see Christ as simply a man, we will allow the problems in our lives to grow larger than they really are because in Christ's hand is power and the ability to change things. As creator, he has complete control, dominion, and power over our lives, our circumstances, events, our future, I don't know what you're struggling with, but we all got something. No one can say, oh man, life is perfect right now. If you do, you need to get real about what's really happening in your heart. But as creator, Christ has control over every situation, our illnesses, our finances, our family, our kids, our everything. And if we don't see that, we allow these things to grow too large in our lives. We begin to assign our fear to it instead of our fear to God himself. Christ has the power to change our hearts, our circumstances, and anything that stands in the way of living a righteous life. There's comfort in that. That I'm not stuck here, helpless. That Christ has the power to change things. Because he lives in us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, I have the ability to overcome the sin in my life. I hate saying that. I hate that truth. I want to say I have no control. I want to say there's nothing I can do. I want to say the, the devil made me do it. Or you made me do it. If you didn't say that thing, I wouldn't have got triggered, and then I would have not gotten mad. It's probably the most common one. You made me do it. The truth is, is that because Jesus lives in us and the Holy Spirit is more powerful than anything in this world, we have the power, even our sin, to overcome our sin. Through Christ. And perhaps... For me, at least, 
one of the most important things is that if we just view Jesus as man, we fail to see, or we, or we look at the struggle, the spiritual warfare that occurs between Jesus and the devil as an equal match. We say, oh, sometimes Jesus is winning. Sometimes Satan is winning. It depends on where we are in the ebb and flow. No. Christ has won. Once and for all. Satan is a created being. Satan was something that Jesus thought of. Let's make Lucifer. He's going to be the most beautiful of my servants. He's going to serve me on the altar. And he gave Lucifer a free will. And Lucifer chose to go his own way. He became Satan, the adversary. Christ has all control over those spiritual forces that seek to wreak havoc on us and distract us from the truth about who Jesus is and the fact that he has overcome the world. Not only is Jesus God and more than a man, but Jesus is the Son of God, not just another prophet or holy man. Peter calls Jesus rabbi. Rabbi means master, but it came to mean teacher. It came to be another human whose life you would model yourself after. Um, and when Peter reveals that word rabbi, he sort of reveals what he understands Jesus to be. A teacher, a wise man, certainly special, but definitely not God, definitely not the Son of God. It is in the transfiguration that Jesus seeks to move the disciples from one perspective on Christ into a fuller perspective that Jesus is the Son of God. One of Mark's main points when he talks about Jesus in this is to reveal who Jesus is. That Jesus is the Son of God. He's not another judge. He's not another king. He's not another prophet. He is my very Son and he declares that we should listen to him. Because Jesus' teaching goes beyond anything. Anything human. Even an exceedingly wise human could teach. And the proof of that wisdom is the fact that Jesus lives. The fact that Jesus lives. That he conquered death and is risen and exalted on high even as we speak. Do you real Think about that. I want you to take a moment to think about this. Jesus is sitting on his throne looking down on this church right now. You feel him looking at us? That he sits there in his glory with power. And everything he said was verified is true. Because the Father declared it and the proof is the resurrection. Muhammad lies in a grave. Gandhi lies in a grave. Freud lies in a grave. And one day, should Jesus choose not to return before our own deaths, I dare say it, even Oprah will lie in a grave. We look to many of the wrong places for our wisdom. Jesus, as the Son of God, declares what is true because he's heard it from the Father. If you want to know the expectations of God for you, look to Jesus' life in its entirety. John 5.19 says, Truly, truly, this is Jesus speaking, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. You see, we parse out the Jesus we want. We make Jesus be who we want him to be. But we need to accept the whole. And finally, Jesus is not just part of the plan of redemption. Jesus is the plan of redemption. We sometimes make the mistake of making Jesus just an integral part. It's integral, but just a part of our life and our worldview, our understanding of what it means to live the Christian life. But we err that when, we, when we don't see that Jesus is not plan B, Jesus is plan A. He is the plan. I talk to people all the time. Often people who are from, we'll call them more nominal denominations, or we'll say cultural Christians. They're born into a certain type of Christianity, and they just say, well, that's us. That's what I am. My family was. I was born this way. This is what it is. Oftentimes when you talk to them, it's interesting. They'll say something like, um, my Christianity is a private matter, which is one way of saying, I don't want to talk about this with you. Or they'll say, Jesus is good, but you don't want to get too extreme. It's, it's too much. There's too, you want to keep them in his place. There's church, there's work, there's home compartmentalizing Jesus, okay, in our faith, in the grand scheme of our lives. But let me tell you, Jesus is the center. Song. It's the reason it's a song. Jesus is the core. Jesus is the axle upon which all of the spokes in our life turn. Certainly there are other things that we need in our life that are important. 
For instance, I'll give you one. Sometimes we lodge these two ideas against each other. We'll say, well, it's either Jesus in the Bible or it's mental health counseling and medication. Okay? We do this piece where it say it's one or the other. All right? The truth is, is that our mental health and the way we use medication for the work of our mental health is supposed to be understood through the filter of our faith. It's understood through who Jesus is. Because in the end, no amount of counseling and no amount of medication is going to change anything on its own. It's through Christ that he's given us the blessings of these things when we need them. But it's through the Bible and through his will that we need to understand them. The way we raise our kids. We can certainly find secular, non-Christian books that tell us the way to raise our kids. And kids, you are have full of obvious situations in your lives where Jesus is not part of it at all. But it's important for us as we live our life that we understand what would Jesus want here? How would Jesus respond here? What does the gospel and the Bible say about the way I'm understanding this situation? Because it's often very, very different than what the world would suggest that we do. If we don't recognize this, we fall into the trap of Jesus and. Jesus and. We say Jesus and my physical health. Jesus and this author, this book, so on and so forth. But it's through Christ that everything is understood. And so we need to do that. Okay. So how do we get this fresh perspective? I mean, we're not there 2,000 years ago. We're not following Jesus up a mountain to the top of Mount Hermon. How do we have a fresh new understanding about who Christ is and so it might impact our lives? Well, we get a fresh perspective on Christ through favor, following, and faith. Favor, following, and faith. And we will see all three of these points in the scripture today. First is we seek God's favor. Now we must recognize, there's another way of saying favor, the, the better way perhaps of saying favor is grace, okay, is grace. But grace doesn't start with an F and the pastor and me couldn't make it a G and two Fs. So we're gonna call it favor, following, and faith. The disciples were brought to the top of the mountain where it says Jesus was transfigured before them. It's a passive verb. It was revealed to them. Jesus didn't do it, and they didn't do it to Jesus. It was revealed to them. We need to understand that any understanding, that any picture of Christ, that our own salvation, the way we understand the scripture, how we understand Jesus, all of that has been delivered to us by grace. By grace. My salvation, I don't know about you, but my salvation story includes going to sleep an unbeliever and waking up a believer. That's the simple, most honest way I can say it. Something happened in my heart. A switch was flipped. And for many of you, you can relate to that same sort of story. That's not everyone's story, but you can relate to it. Suffice it to say, there's nothing that I did or there's nothing that you've done to receive salvation. To even understand the words of the gospel was given to you by grace. You might have sat in a church one day or a Billy Graham uh, meeting or speaking to one of your friends and they told you about the gospel and it suddenly clicked. Jesus made sense. Our sin made sense. And it was in that moment that God took the blinders off. But you didn't do it yourself. God did it for you by grace. And the revelation of Jesus here is the same way. So we we recognize that and we look to God's written word and we ask him, tell us about you. Tell me who you are. Reveal to me who you are from your word. So favor. Second is we follow, even when it's hard. We follow. Mount Hermon, this is where they are, 15 miles from where they started at uh, um, Caesarea Philippi. And 15 miles difference in a 9,000 foot ascent. So how can I put that into perspective? Imagine you start here, and imagine you're walking towards Chicago to a point that is nine times taller than the Sears Tower. Okay? That trek. No paths. Through the wilderness. Getting colder and colder. Likely snow-covered following Jesus, who probably did not tell them where they were going. If we know Jesus. Follow me. They followed him. Some of us want mountaintop experiences without the mountaintop hike. 
Some of us want to see who Jesus is without straining to follow him to see it. Jesus probably doesn't want to reveal himself to you in your moment right now. He wants to reveal you in your moment of fatigue, chaos, desperation. Keep following Christ even when it's hard, and it's there you'll find who he is. It is a testimony of the scriptures and countless believers over the ages that God most often reveals himself to us in our struggles, in the chaos, and not when things are good and easy. I say it all the time. No one gets saved on the day they win the lottery. No one. The reason we don't see him is we're not looking for him to show up. We look for other things first to assuage our fears. I can, we say, I can follow Christ through this terrible mountain pass to a place where he might reveal himself to me, or I can stop and drink this six-pack. Okay, 12-pack, speaking from experience. Or I can tune things out and binge-watch my favorite television show. Or I can ignore the loved ones in my family who need help, or who need me to be there, but the stress that it brings, and the stuff I got going in my heart distracts me so I can't. Or we use drugs, or sex, or anything. Anything. Our hearts will tell us are better than following Christ when it's hard, even though we know, even though the scripture tells us that he'll she'll show up. He'll reveal himself to you. But we have to follow. So not only do we look for favor, we ask for favor, we follow when it's hard, but we exercise our faith. We exercise our faith to believe what Christ has already revealed himself. You see, faith and questioning are not opposed ideas. Even the disciples asked Jesus. As they're coming down the mountain, they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? They're saying, you're talking about all this, the Savior must die thing, but the scribes are saying, you cannot be the Messiah because Elijah has to come. Elijah hasn't come, you are not the Messiah. So they ask him, they use the scribes' own arguments and say, why does it say this? They're really asking about Jesus' identity. Who are you really? That's, that's an astounding fact considering what has just happened on the top of the mountain. We need to be in a place where we can say, okay, I know that I understand the Bible to say this, but Jesus has just revealed something that seems to mean that I have to adjust how I understand this. Because in the end, we want to understand who Jesus really is. Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come and restores all things. And then he turns it around on them. He says, but it's also written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. Basically, he's saying, you need to understand Scripture through Scripture. You're understanding, the scribes are understanding me as the Messiah only through the fact that Elijah must come first. They do not believe that I'm the Messiah, so they're cherry-picking verses that seem to point that direction. But Jesus then goes on and also says, Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah must suffer and die. So then he adjusts their understanding. He says, but I tell you, Elijah has come, and they've done to him everything they wish, just as it's written about him. We must, we must become willing to allow Jesus to dictate his identity to us and not make him be who we want him to be. We must allow God's word to reveal itself to us instead of revealing what we want it to say to us. We do this by looking at the whole of Scripture, opening our hearts and being ready to believe the truth. That maybe, just maybe, I'll give you an example, maybe, just maybe, Jesus' salvation is completely free. Maybe, just maybe, when the Scripture says that I'm forgiven because of what Christ has done, maybe, just maybe, I am. Maybe when the Scripture says, have no fear for I am with you, that maybe there's a good reason that I should not fear. And these things I carry around and would say, yes, but. We allow God to speak for himself. We allow Christ to reveal himself to us. We allow him to reveal that he is the divine son, the center of God's plan of redemption. We understand that having an incomplete vision of who he is impacts our life. And we seek that fresh perspective through God's favor, through following him, and through having faith in what he's revealed. So let us seek that new perspective. Let us live a different life. Let today be the start of something new that, no, I'm going to believe that verse for what it says. This is who Christ says he is. I will follow him like that. Have no fear that the way to life is death. 
that if you want to be great, make yourself small. When our ideas about Jesus are challenged by God's word, let us look past what we think and let Jesus speak for himself. And let us entrust ourselves and our lives to that Jesus and not our incomplete, convenient version of him. We just might find something sweeter than we imagined. Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we just were so grateful. We sit here, Lord, in your presence. We know that you're here among us. We know that you live in us and that you look down upon us. We pray, Lord, that you would show us who you really are. Lord, if there's those of us among us that, that, that have to adjust this understanding of who you are in order to live the life that you're calling them to live, I pray, Lord, that you would do it today. Give us the grace, Lord. Reveal to us who you are. Give us the grace to believe that, Lord, and help us follow you wherever you may lead, wherever you may lead. I pray, Lord, for the families in this church that you would bless them, that as a family they would begin to see who you are separately, that parents would love their children the way Jesus loves us, that parents would raise their children with the same grace and forgiveness that they received from Christ. Lord, I confess that's me. I, I, tr I struggle. And I know many of us here do as well. Lord, I pray for the kids, and I pray that you would give them the grace to see who you are. Help them, Lord, to follow you well in school, in dealing with their friends, and in dealing with their families, loving their mom and dad the way that uh, you love your own father. We thank you, Lord, for today's lesson. We thank you for this message, and we ask that it would change us, transform us, or transfigure us into the people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.